what were we, what were we talking about last time? Um, we were talking about the alligator gar. I think last time we left it off. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. First of all, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. We had such a good chat last time. God, I couldn't believe half the stuff you said, especially all that <laughs> stuff in Costa Rica. That blew me away. Yeah, the, the getting taken hostage. That story. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah, that story. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that was that was crazy. But since then, um, what's came out? So wolves, um, a blue frog. Yeah. Um, the alligator gar, which came in a, diff- a couple of segments. Yeah. And um, a few other bits and pieces. Uh, but I'm... timber rattlesnake episode, and... which I think we talked about timber rattlesnakes yeah. as well. Um, and something else. Oh, golden trout. I think I was telling you about that golden trout that was coming out. So yeah, yeah you hinted. And, and I can't remember that when we last we spoke, was I getting ready to film the sea lamprey or had I just filmed the eaten alive by sea lamprey? I think you were talking about some kind of horrible story to do with the sea lamprey. I think you might have been writing the script, maybe. Maybe that, I think that's what it was. And yeah. I I think I was just getting ready to go film it, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah. Which I've thus filmed it at this point. Ooh. Yes. How's that gone? Oh, my gosh. Get ready. <laughs> what For what may be the two biggest episodes of the year on the Brave Wilderness Channel. It is, it is bonkers. It yeah. is the craziest bite slash eaten alive slash extreme episode we've ever filmed we we broke it into two parts hmm. um and without giving anything away to anybody watching the second episode is so edge of your seat like oh my gosh he's going to attach these two foot suction cup mouth 150 tooth razor sharp scraping tongue creatures to his arm his stomach and his neck and it's painful man like there will be blood. Let's just put it that way. I bet. Yeah. Well, that's, that's all they feed on really, isn't it? It's um, like internal fluids and stuff. Yeah. So we, we came to some pretty interesting conclusions about what lamprey will eat and what lamprey won't eat. But let's just say when it comes to uh, people liking Coyote Peterson being bitten by things and wanting to like be on the edge of their seat, like there's no way he's going to do this. There's no way. Oh my gosh, he's doing it. It is <laughs> so intense. We're so excited about the episodes. Oh, I can't wait. I mean, I didn't, there was a part of me that was going, is is this alligator gar really going to be as big as it was? Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Is that a big fish? That's not a fish. That's a fucking dinosaur. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, What's cool about those episodes are that, um, you know, part of the, the initiative with that was to push a conservation effort to get the gar listed as a game fish species. And at the end, we promoted this change.org petition that since has gone from like 3,000 signatures to well over 15. I think it's like approaching 17,000 signatures at this point, which is not going to get them game fish status. But a lot of people are taking notice and a couple of the conservation groups that we've been in connection with are now pushing their initiatives to the next level. So the microphone that we were able to initiate with that did get them a lot of additional support. And, you know, here's to hoping that these guys can continue their, their battle to get them, you know, listed as, as game fish and that we can get protections in place to limit the number and the size of the fish that are essentially harvested every single year. Awesome. I, I remember seeing that petition immediately after um, that episode um, where mm-hmm. you mentioned it and I signed that thing straight away. Because I mean, uh, I think it was last time that me and you had a chat. And if you're, you know, if you're familiar with Cody Peterson's videos, you'll know that it was talked about that the alligator gar has essentially been persecuted for the last 100 years or so as like this man-eating super predator, even though alligator gar are really gentle, very timid Mm -hmm. and only really eat fish item prey items that they can just about fit into their mouth and they're really picky as well yeah um and they've been like electrocuted um river systems and just to try and kill this um this fish that was pretty peaceful as far as predators go mm. and yeah it's it's been head it's like the 
if you look on the on the maps for alligator gar and how widely it was distrib distributed um, across the United States back in the day, um, and now it's in just small clusters uh, in uh, like in like in I don't know I've got I can't remember what states there are. What is there? Texas, Louisiana. Yeah, I Texas. mean you're right. It's very limited at this point. Yeah. So, and it is an, a beautiful predator. It is absolutely a beautiful creature. It's something that time forgot. It really is with body armor and it can like, if it goes into river systems where there's little oxygen, it can breathe, breathe air and things like that. It's such a, an amazingly tough, adaptable creature and it deserves our protection, not our, you know, our vengefulness right. at all. Well, the thing, the thing that that species really represents, and I think is probably true for many uh, predators that have a negative reputation surrounding them, is it's a perfect example of how heartless and unintelligent humans can be. Right. And look, people are always going to sport fish or bow fish for that species, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the decimation of the populations and people aimlessly shooting these things for fun that is the biggest problem. Like if you're going to go out and you're going to harvest an alligator gar to eat it, which I don't know why you would need to do that at right. this point, then, <laughs> then fine. That's fair. If your family is surviving because you are eating alligator gar, then Great, more power to you. But to aimlessly go out there as, you know, a, a beer drinking dude with his buddies on a boat to shoot things with arrows and then leave their bodies in the water or throw them up on an embankment, for what purpose? Why? Be because you don't have something better to do? Read a book. Yeah. You know, uh, go recycle your beer cans. I don't know. <laughs> to do something that is not that destructive to our environment. People are going to argue that you know, well, these fish eat a lot of the native fish species. Well, yeah, it's called population balance. They're not overly eating out populations of fish. And they're actually helping control populations of invasive fish. Mm. Um, invasive Asian carp are a huge problem in a lot of ecosystems. And the gar specialize in feeding on these invaders. So they're doing a lot of great for the environment. So let them be, man. Let them be. Yeah, to totally agree. Um, I suppose they're what is called um, like a key predator um a key predator species so yeah um famously in in north america you had wolves which were mm -hmm. widely spread across across um north america and they were spread even further than that it seems right. and for the longest time they were persecuted um so, uh, maybe back in the day it was somewhat justified i can never justify killing an animal in such a way but they were killing livestock and and things like that or persecuted for doing so or blamed for killing livestock right. but the the wrath that was then um you know that the wolf species then felt it was what well, was obliterated. It was annihilated across uh, North America. It was mm. ridiculous in the, in the same way that um, um, like um, a th like a thylacines that were obliterated across um, Tasmania because they were believed to be hunting livestock, sheep, things like that, and they were wiped off the map. And we had um, in England we had bear species, we had mm -hmm. wolf species. Um, we had um, like lynx-like species as well and beavers and they were completely eradicated and they're cornerstone species. Cornerstone species, that's what I needed to yep. say. So as soon as they're removed from an ecosystem, you get this huge imbalance. And like in places like North America, you've got certain prey item species that have just gone rampant, which is causing like a real imbalance within certain ecosystems. Here's a, here's a rather interesting statistic, sure. um, and I don't know the exact number, just as a generalization. Hmm. Wolves balance the population of ungulates, right? Um, yeah. Elk and deer. I couldn't even tell you, I'm sure we could easily look this up, how many people die every single year from car accidents centering around hitting deer with their vehicles. There's honestly probably more people to get killed by deer during rutting season from angry deer attacking them than the number of people that get killed by wolves. And in fact, there are only a handful of documented cases where people have actually been killed by wolves. And in every one of those instances, it had to do with people feeding 
or trying to feed packs of wolves. So you do the math. Wolves are really not that dangerous. And what's cool about today, David, we're speaking, hmm. while voting is insanely important for everybody across all spectrums of voting, today is the, the votes that are happening in Colorado to determine whether or not uh, the gray wolf will be released back into the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains. So I'm very excited to see how that initiative ultimately plays out. And, and hopefully they'll be getting paused back on the ground by 2023, which I believe is the year that they hope that the, these different packs will be reintroduced. So fingers crossed that that happens. Fingers crossed. What yeah. is the kind of resistance that that um, whole operation is getting? Uh, ranchers, definitely yeah. people with sheep or cattle. And, you know, in, in their own rightful sense, sure. If you're invested in, you know, being a, a cattle or a sheep farmer, you're concerned about your head of livestock. And the number of livestock that are killed every year by wolves is actually fewer than the number of livestock that slip into prairie dog burrows, break their legs, and end up dying out there naturally on the prairie. So mm. uh, wolves don't go after livestock as much as people would think. And usually the only times that wolves do is when human encroachment has affected their natural food source so much so that they're left to nothing other than that choice. But again, it's a very small percentage of livestock that is actually killed every year by wolves. So much so that you can argue that more cows just die from, like I said, breaking their legs, falling down into a valley. Cows are not smart animals. <laughs> they'll walk right up to the edge of something and the, the edge will give out and they'll fall down a valley and get killed far before they're going to get killed by a wolf. So um, it's not as catastrophic as most ranchers would think, but in fairness to the ranchers, if you're defending your investment, you're probably going to be against the wolves. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of nuances to the whole reintroduction of predator species to certain environments. I know that in Scotland, here in Scotland, we there is a, there's a huge area of privately owned land where they're trying to reintroduce wolves there too. Mm -hmm um that's obviously not public land because for, for obvious reasons scotland is not america um there's a huge there's way more space and open open grounds and territory for for wolves to explore and take advantage of in the united states over a small patch of um a mountain range in scotland but Reintroduction of key species is, is, I believe, is so important. It's called like rewilding projects we have here in Great Britain. And we have, we're trying and having really good success of reintroducing um, predator species like pine martins. Um, yeah, which is uh, like weasel, like, like predators, which hunt well, gray I've, squirrels I've and things. I've plenty of pine martins. They're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But um, we've got um, the American gray squirrel is um, is re is really really prevalent um, in. You guys have invasive? Are they invasive there? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Dude, so, I feel like they're invasive here in the United States. I mean, I live <laughs> in Ohio. There are squirrels everywhere in my backyard. Like you can't. They're we're overrun by squirrels. So I'm not surprised to hear you guys have them there too. That's it. Yeah. No, we've got, well, there's, so, there's so many people just think that they're, they're natives pretty much. They've been here that long. Um, we, oh, there's so many different invasive species. We've got like ring, we've got green ringed uh, parakeets in London. Mm. Oh, huge, huge colonies. Yeah. Like thousands huge of huge thousands of individuals and they nest and they're really hardy birds yeah. and they outcompete um, native birds like, like corvids and and pigeon uh, species and things like that and they're really noisy but um the reintroduction of species that we've lost like i kept mentioning beavers they're so like north you you guys in north america are very familiar with beavers and yeah. how yeah how they how they shape ecosystems and how they create ecosystems which mm -hmm. are that have been around uh, for thousands of years and we've lost that so mm -hmm. because of their natural dam building ability and, and habits we've got um a lot of flooding um a lot of um habitats just doesn't have the rich diversity as it used to because there are no beavers there, there there's no natural floodplains that are created because there's beavers and now they're being reintroduced we're seeing all kinds of different bird species come back to these areas we're seeing all kinds of different predator species 
uh, all kinds of different species that were are considered endangered in Great Britain we're mm. seeing come back because we're having this reintroduction of a key, keystone species and there's only a few pairs few breeding pairs and that's it Right. So, yeah, it just goes to show that we need to protect species like the alligator gar, timber rattlesnakes, wolves, all of these different animals. And I was going to ask you about the timber rattlesnakes. I've only recently seen that video. Okay. What was that like, holding a rattlesnake? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this a little bit um, just publicly. There was a lot of scrutiny that happened around the timber rattlesnake episode. We yeah. got in a whole bunch of heat um, from the herpetology community because a clip came out on Instagram that was taken out of context, right? So our social media teams um, take pieces of episodes, put them up to promote stuff. And a piece of an, uh, the episode came out a day before promoting it with no context as to whether or not we had permits, where it was that we were filming, what the habitat was. It was, it was a destroyed habitat that was rebuilt and we were there to investigate whether or not snakes had returned to the environment. So there ended up being this huge sort of like backlash against the episode, um, which, you know, you're going to run into that at points in time and people being like, you know, a gazillion negative things said about me and Brave Wilderness and whatnot. But the overall episode, once people watched it and got the full context, did exceptionally well. I think the video is almost at like 2 million views at this point. And the conservation message that exists within the video for those snakes is so incredibly important. And where I'm ultimately going with this is that it was actually rather refreshing to see a lot of people get up in arms over a snake. Mm. Now, anybody that's going to judge Brave Wilderness and be like, come on, if you follow us, you know that we do things by the book. We do things in the best interest of these animals and to promote a conservation message. But to see people get so defensive about these snakes was actually pretty refreshing, considering the fact that in many states that have rattlesnakes, they have yearly rattlesnake roundups where people catch and slaughter snakes by the thousands and throw them out a dumpster. It's like... Wow. It's absurd to me. So what we're hoping is that a lot of the like uproar that came over these rattlesnakes will actually help to further protect the snakes. Like why in the state of West Virginia, is it possible for somebody to go out and get a hunting license to kill at least one rattlesnake a year if it's over 42 inches in length? For what purpose? Because you want to eat a rattlesnake? Who needs to eat a rattlesnake these days? You know, yeah. like... Of all the other things that we have at our fingertips to possibly eat, who needs to eat rattlesnakes? So, you know, these animals are losing their habitat constantly. And where we filmed this episode was on something called a right-of-way that was built by a natural gas pipeline. They had to destroy the side of a mountain to put in this natural gas pipeline. But then it was essentially rewilded with the way that they built it back together and created a perfect like habitat for rattlesnakes. So um, it was cool to be able to feature that. Everything was done by the books with permits. We worked with a, a wildlife expert that does this for a job. And um, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a great message for these snakes, which most people, you know, at the end of the day, if they don't know anything, are terrified of them because they're rattlesnakes and they're venomous. And if they bite you, yeah, you would be in a, a lot of trouble. But the work that we had to go through just to find these snakes was intense. And this was our third time trying to find these animals in the wild. I would, yeah, I was, I was going to ask uh, about that, actually. So what is, why are these particular, like, timber rattlesnakes, so why are they so um, difficult to, to find altogether? Because I saw, I saw the habitat that you were just describing, and it is essentially a cliff face in between two, um, two bits of forest land, I suppose, mm -hmm. isn't it? So two bits of woodland, and you've just got this huge incline that's incredibly yeah. steep. It is some of the toughest hiking I have ever done. The times that we have searched for timber rattlesnakes, there'll be points in, in footage that you haven't seen in, in our attempts previous to film this episode. There were points where we were going up inclines where I was like, I don't know how we're physically going to get back down other than to get to the top and try to find a different route. Because when you look back behind you, you're like, I'm not going back down that. Like it's crazy the environment they live in and it's, it's just, it's what keeps them protected. I mean, it's also completely fair to say that people encounter these things crossing roads or encounter them in parks. But for us, 
part of the joy of making an episode is that grand adventure that you can go on to see this animal in its most remote setting. Yeah, I could go to a wildlife sanctuary and be like, do you guys have a timber rattlesnake we can film with? And they'd be like, yeah, go take the one out of this glass enclosure, give us some facts about it and put it back. What fun is that for me? And how does that create that adventurous uh, journey that we love to share with our audience? The snake encounter we had was so much more rewarding because of the work that we had to put in. And those snakes that we featured are now an icon for their species. I mean, we're talking 2 million views in just a couple of weeks. The lifetime of this video, it'll be the most watched piece of timber rattlesnake content ever produced in the history of animal adventure shows. And that's a great testament to this species. And the message that comes away from it is that we need to find a way to preserve the future for these animals. And it, with habitat is destroyed, we need to be encouraging the companies that are destroying the habitat to find a way to use the, your term rewild it, you know, and um, that's, that's important to us. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree with that sentiment. Um, I saw on your, just to just reiterate what you, what you mentioned about the controversy. Um, yes, that's, that's good because it seems like people genuinely care about the well-being of this species, mm -hmm. but I did see that uh, this, this professional that was guiding you through how to, how to, um, correctly handle uh, this this fairly dangerous um, snake species and you guided it for the pe for people that haven't seen the episode you guided it into yeah. this um, this uh, see-through plas plastic tube um, and halfway you grabbed it by its main body and then held the mm -hmm. held the rattle and showed us how how the rattle works and the, the intricacies of its tail and things like that so who is the guy that's showing you um, how to handle this snake so Tim Brust is a guy that we've worked with several times. He <laughs> works all throughout the middle of uh, uh, sort of Eastern United States, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, um, doing research on a number of different species. So he's a, he's a, a certified herpetologist um, and he gets different permits every year to study different species, whether it's rattlesnakes, salamanders, crayfish. I mean, the list goes on and on with the mm. things that he goes out and documents. And the company that he works for um, called, called Edge, uh, they essentially go into wild places in advance before construction projects move in to record the species that are there. Now, let's say they go into an environment and they're like, ooh, we found a really rare salamander. That area essentially gets protected and construction is not able to happen in that environment. Now, right. if it's something like a timber rattlesnake that doesn't have the same sort of protections as some critically endangered salamander, it will be, okay, come in and try to move as many of the snakes as you can. And then once the habitat begins to replenish itself, like where we were filming, he comes back in and documents whether or not the population is rebounding and starting to sustain. So it's incredibly important work. Um, and it's really not that invasive. The kind of work they do is not the kind of work that a lot of biologists do, where here's a great example, like his permits basically allow for the death of up to two individual animals. So let's say some sort of accident were to happen mm -hmm. and a snake were to get killed, his permits allow for these animals to get killed. And that's the same for a lot of different biologists projects because accidents happen, right? But a lot of biologists, the way that they'll go into the environment and, you know, cut open and put transmitters in animals or, you know, just some of the stuff that I've, I've seen animals have to go through is not nearly as invasive as some of the, the work that we do to just simply educate you about the animals. Now, going back to your original question about the plastic tubes that we put the snakes in, yeah. that is the safest and less, least stressful way for the snake to be examined, right? Now, we don't need to poke it. We don't need to pull blood. We get a measurement. We count the rattle and we essentially assess the health. Does it have any ticks on it? Does it have any you know, open injuries? Um, and essentially determine that the snake is healthy, doing fine, and then it's released right back into the spot that it came from. I mean, it's kind of like you go into the doctor, a doctor's checkup where the most they do is put a stethoscope on you, look in your ears, get your height and weight and say, cool, you look healthy, good to go. Love it, love this. I love all these ins and outs that you don't actually see on the show, yeah. this is great. So um, another, th another thing that we see uh, with a lot of the snake episodes, it's 
especially with um, like venomous snakes, like a rattlesnake, um, it's important to pull, um, like to milk the snake. To, so take a venom sample, essentially. Is that is that a vital is that vital for developing anti venom for for certain snakes? No, it's completely unnecessary to ever do anything like that in okay. the field. All anti venoms at this point come from venom laboratories. Um, we've we've filmed episodes on that before. We have a couple of episodes in pre production now that we'll be filming next year. Um, you know there are different venom milking facilities located throughout the world. Any country that has a venomous snake population is going to have some sort of venom milking facility. Now, whether or not sometimes snakes are caught in the wild and brought into captivity happens, yes, or has happened in the past. But at this point, all of these facilities have snakes that have been raised in captivity or that were injured and brought into captivity that are now being kept and taken care of in captivity and that are able to be milked to create anti-venom. So no, to answer your question more directly, we would never need to milk a snake in the wild to take its venom sample. Not to mention the fact that it's not a sterile environment. You can't be out in the wild and be like, all right, I've got a container and I'm going to squirt venom into here and put it into a capsule. Like mm. everything has to be sterile and, and done very quickly. That venom has to be put into you know, a refrigerator to keep it fresh from, um, they'll, they'll, it'll crystallize over time if it's not kept at a certain temperature. So uh, yeah, it's all a process that's done in labs at this point. And then the process of, of the venom being ultimately turned into anti-venom is a whole nother huge conversation that of course is done in, in, in highly specialized laboratories. No, that's, that's definitely good to know. It's good to know. Um, yeah, on the topic of, because essentially me and you, uh, we really like to talk about certain species that have really had a hard yeah. time in the press. Um, so what would you say on the topic of things like alligator gars and timber rattlesnakes and other um, dangerous animals that have had a bad rap and have been persecuted over the years? What do you think is the most persecuted animal that you've encountered so far that really doesn't deserve its um, reputation? I mean, probably the simplest go-to at this point really is sharks. And, you know, everything that has the potential to eat you is feared by somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Or if there's any animal that you don't know something about, somebody's afraid of it. From something as small as a fire ant to the size of, you know, a, a Siberian tiger. But when it comes to sharks specifically, I love Steven Spielberg. He's one of my greatest, like I idolize Spielberg and the work that he's done with his career. But what Steven Spielberg did for movies with Jaws, he also yeah. did something completely opposite when it came to the preservation of sharks. He turned the great white shark and all shark species for that matter into a villain. Now, you could also argue that Peter eventually started that by writing Jaws and Stephen just translated it into a film. And, you know, obviously we've grown a lot since 1975 and the way that we look at sharks and the way that they do or do not predate upon humans. But people are afraid of sharks, I would say, more than, than anything. And Yes, you can be afraid of sharks because a shark bite is going to be a very damaging, potentially catastrophic encounter if you have one, but humans weren't meant to be in the ocean. We might like to go in the ocean because people enjoy swimming and surfing and boating and jet skiing and any other sport that surrounds the water, but if you're going to take the risk of going into an animal's environment, well, you stand the risk of running into it. Now, if you're going to put yourself into the physical and visual representation of a prey item like a seal mm. or a sea turtle, you're only upping the ante. Now, that's not to say that I, I'm pointing a finger at, at uh, you know, paddle boarders or surfers or anything like that to be like, you guys shouldn't do what this is, but you are taking a risk every time you do that and you have to be aware of it. The same way that if you're gonna go out and ride your bicycle, in the road with other vehicles, you're aware that like you might eventually get hit by a garbage truck. Accidents happen all the time. Shark attacks are exactly that. They're an accident. That shark comes up and it's like, oh, from underneath, I see a big silhouette of what looks like a sea lion or a sea turtle. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take a bite out of it because this could be my next meal. And 
nine times out of 10, that shark bites it. And it's like, oh wait, it's styrofoam and a squishy suit and something else that I bit into. And it's not blood that I'm used to eating. Okay, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm done with what this is. The problem is that when you get bitten by a shark, especially a great white, a bull shark or a tiger shark, that bite is so damaging, there's a good chance you're not gonna survive simply based on blood loss, shock, cardiac arrest. There are so many things that can go wrong with a shark bite happening that gets compounded upon, right? The number of people every year that are, are physically like eaten by sharks is very, I mean, I don't know what the exact statistic is. It, it may be fewer than five people that are actually ever eaten. It, it may be less than zero people, mm. um, to be honest with you. I have to look up the recent statistics. And while yes, bites do happen, they're usually bite and release. And the person usually ends up getting away when they die, it's because of blood loss or again, shock or cardiac arrest. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, they really do have a bad rap. I mean, the worst, the worst shot you've got around the British Isles, I don't really know too much about shark species around uh, the USA coastline, but we've got basking sharks. Basking sharks are oh, really yeah, common. Harmless. Exactly. Yeah. You'd be gummed to death before, yeah, before anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the thing is, you know, Jaws set up the great white shark as being the most dangerous, but mm. to be honest with you, the most dangerous is the bull shark. And the reason the bull shark is so dangerous is because they're relentless, right? They are repetitive customers when it comes to biting. And the thing that's dangerous about bull sharks is that they can transition between saltwater and freshwater. You oftentimes encounter them in estuaries. And the thing that's dangerous about estuaries is the water is not clear. It's always murky where the, the ocean meets the riverheads. And bull sharks are working off of their sensory organs in the front of their snouts and they'll come up and they'll hit something and they'll hit it again and they'll hit it again. So bull sharks are extremely dangerous. I mean, you've got a, a number of different divers out there these days that are, are swimming with great white sharks and getting incredible footage outside of cages. Now, if you're going to go into a scenario where you're drawing in great white sharks by throwing in chum and chunks of fish and you're evoking a feeding frenzy, and you get outside of that cage, yeah, that shark might get curious and come over and be like, you look like a big chunk of something I should bite <laughs> onto. But a lot of the underwater cinematographers, and even um, there's a girl named Ocean Ramsey that has kind of become famous for swimming with white sharks. She's doing it in crystal clear water in, in scenarios where the sharks are not feeding. Um, I have been in the water with great hammerheads and tiger sharks within touching distance. I've been hands-on with tiger sharks cool. And in, you feel very nervous, but at no point did I feel like, oh, this shark might eat me. It was not interested in attacking me at all. Now, if I was in murky water or at night and that shark came up and got curious, remember, it's not so much that that shark wants to eat me, it's that it's curious. And when you've got a mouth that's 21 inches in circumference and you fit a piece of a human inside of you and bite it, I mean, it's kind of going to probably be game over. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally agree. It's um, <laughs> the, the ancient predators. I mean, they're more ancient than the alligator gar in terms of yeah. their, yeah, they're beyond dinosaurs in terms of age. Um, and they've stuck around just because right. of their amazing adaptations. And they've really got a, um, they've really got a body shape and an anatomy that just works. They're right. like cartilaginous skeletons and a conveyor belt row of teeth and their lateral line and the whole sensory organs around their head. I mean, you named my favorite shark just because mm -hmm. of its um, unique sensory organ, the hammerhead, just right. how it sort of uses its head as a metal detector. <laughs> well, and, and here's, here's where I'm ultimately going with this rant is that <laughs> Sharks have been painted in a negative light, starting with Jaws, right? Yep. And probably way before that, I'm not putting any blame on, on Spielberg or, or eventually by any means. It didn't help shark situation. But where we need people to change their stance is to understand how important sharks are as a balancer to the ocean ecosystem and the real threat that sharks face today with shark finning and this whole shark fin soup and yep. shark fins for medicine like the protections that we need to get put in place for sharks, like they are getting wiped off the face of the planet, more mm -hmm. so than probably any other predator. And at this point, I kind of feel like we're past that fear. And I don't feel like people are just aimlessly killing sharks because they're afraid. Sharks are getting killed because people are stealing their fins, slaughtering them 
for their fins. Yeah. So the less we're afraid of sharks, the more we love sharks, the more people are going to be motivated to stop this craziness that's happening with the shark finning. And that, that is, I mean, any shark conservationist would likely tell you that first and foremost, that is the biggest thing that needs support right now in protecting our oceans. And I'll tell you what, if we lose the sharks, forget about it. The ocean ecosystem is going to be thrown so off balance, it will ultimately topple the rest of, of the world for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. If there, if there is, I keep saying totally agree because <laughs> you're just singing truth, my friend. I mean, if there's one topic about predators in our seas and, and sharks in general, it is the whole finning situation. I mean, like for anyone who's not really familiar with what shark finning is, essentially all they take is the fins and it's usually the dorsal yep. fin and, and nothing else. So they'll chop off a dorsal fin, which is, so, which is vital for the shark survival. It can't live without it and they throw it in alive. They throw it back in most of the time. Well, yeah, so, to die so they cut off the death. dorsal fin and the pectoral fins, right. right? A lot of times it's the pectoral fins too. And then they will throw the shark off the edge of the boat it has no ability to write it. I mean, you, it can't survive. Yeah. So essentially it just suffers and dies at the bottom of the ocean. Like, like it's so horrific. And, mm. you know, I, I know people have talked to us to be like, you know, Coyote, are, are you guys ever going to touch on some of these points? The answer to that question is, is yes. And it's when is the timing right? Brave mm. Wilderness has a lot of sensitivities when it comes to how we're educating our audience I'm not going to go out there and make a documentary right now that's going to be absorbed by five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids where it's like, let me show you what it's like for a shark to get its fins cut off and thrown to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. The timing for us to do something like that is not necessarily this moment, but it is on the forefront of things we will get involved with to, to fight for these, these animals. I mean, we, we're doing a lot of work right now for rhinos. And um, we just raised a pretty good chunk of money for a, a rhino conservation group um, that we partnered with earlier this year, specifically a, a reserve in South Africa called the Karika, Karika Game Reserve. And um, we will be producing some, some, some uh, episodes in 2021 that specifically surround poaching and the, the dehorning of rhinos. And, you know, we're going to kind of have to go to that next level with our audience, just like the GAR episode where we had to put graphic warnings because we were showing people shooting GAR yeah. and showing you the butchered bodies of GAR. Like there's going to be some adult level content coming to Brave Wilderness that has to do with the dehorning of rhinos. Like it's gruesome stuff, but at some point the younger generation needs to get exposed to this. And we're trying to balance what is that right exposure how do we go about the right way and how do we like force and when i say force i mean like encourage in the right way a kid to be like oh this is gross i need my parents to get involved i want to get involved because that's how that's going to change the future of these species it's it's not going to happen with people our age right we, we are doing it mm -hmm. but it's going to take that much time for the younger generation to ultimately get involved that's really going to change the dynamic and people's viewpoints moving forward. And I, and I say this of all days on election day here in the United States, when so many things need to change and they need to change all the way around in so many means, but with the animal world specifically, it breaks down to like what we're doing to our, our wild populations of animals. It's, it's heartbreaking and it's the future generations that are ultimately going to change this. Yeah, that's it. Uh, there's a couple of, points to touch on there um and it's good because one you'd consider yourself a youtuber right so yeah and then i mean i create a lot of space in the youtube a lot of content in the youtube space but yeah. i mean I'm, I'm a content creator at the end okay of the day. yeah okay so a content creator that predominantly shows content on on this platform called youtube mm -hmm. the good thing about youtube um in as a whole is that it seems like a lot of um, uh, a lot of consumers, a lot of fans of certain content creators and YouTubes, they YouTubers, they seem to mature alongside uh, the content creator or or YouTuber. And mm -hmm. I think that Brave Wilderness has been going for a little while now, and six, it won't yes, a little over six years now. Right. Yeah. So it won't be long before those 
like eight to 12 year olds are becoming um, responsible teenagers and they want to do something about their natural world and want to know how to defend it and educate themselves on the subject. So I think, um, yeah, as, as you start to, as the more the, the channel ages and the more that your dedicated viewers are carried along with you, um, yeah, it's, it's just gonna, it's just, I think it's just gonna, you know, fall naturally. It's just gonna be, it's not something you're going to really need to think too too hard about. I think that more mature content is just going to, you know, it's the the time is going to be right eventually. Right. You're going to. Well, here's here's how I look at it too. I just recently saw uh, Sir David Attenborough's new special on Netflix, so yeah. A Life on Our Our Planet, I, I believe is what it's called. I mean like it's that's like the opus piece for his career if you haven't seen it or anybody watching hasn't seen it like if you like animals you care about our planet it is a must see the message yep. that comes out of that for everybody that but that i specifically took away from it like it was a call to action it was like this is what he has done in his 90 plus years on our planet what he has seen what he has gone through and he's calling out to the rest of us to be like, it's on us now to take this to the next level. It's, it's on me as an individual, as a presenter, as, an, as a, a voice and a microphone in the animal world to carry on that initiative, right? I'm, I'm 39 years old and, you know, just under half of his age. And I'm like, man, have I even done enough with my career at this point? And I can question that, or I can look at the time that I have left to be like, how do I live up to what he's done. How do I take my next 40 years and go beyond what Attenborough has done? How do I change the future? The, the kids that I'm reaching right now so that when they're my age, they're like, oh, Coyote's time has gone past. How am I going to take what he taught me to this next level? Because life goes by so fast for us as humans. It seems like it drags on forever in some instances, but we're a blip in the grand scheme of the universe. And if we can get the kids that are following us now, the same way that I followed Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin, David Attenborough, all these people that came before me, like that is the cry to be like, keep going, right? We have a responsibility to the future generations and to this planet to get this done, to change things, to save the planet. Cause we're killing it. Yep. We're literally destroying the planet yeah. as we live on it, which is, it's heartbreaking. And, 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 and Sir, Sir David's documentary will really open up your eyes to that. It's very powerful. It is. It's so powerful. I love that man. I love that man so much. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even want to bear thinking about his age because I just want him to be around forever. But yeah. I remember when I was a kid, um, I was watching, you might be familiar as well with his, one of his series called The Trials of Life. Mm -hmm. which was one of his uh, more famous series. I love that series. I got it on VHS and everything. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> pro proper fan. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember watching that and I remember um, him describing the natural world to me as if he was in the room and thinking that the natural world was this unassailable, infinite um, indestructible um, force of nature that was like untold beauty and no one could ever harm it. How wrong I was um, um, at the, at that age of what, I think I was 10, must've been 10 years old. Mm -hmm. The 10 years old that are alive now are so much more clued up, ready to go, one, ready to educate their parents on the subjects of environmentalism and protecting the these vital ecosystems around the world for the future generations and these 10 year olds are thinking in the future for the future generations of that 10 year old mm -hmm. so that's an amazing change of like the dynamic of how uh, the kids think about the about the natural world it's like the zeitgeist has really changed to um, we've got to defend the world it is finite we have no second planet i mean I work for a, a really big environmental organization, which I can't legally uh, mention on, on this podcast, yeah. but it's uh, one of the oldest going, going for nearly 50 years now. And people call in, I work in the office now um, because of the viruses, you know, forced me to change jobs. I used to be a fundraiser for this organization 
and people call in and they go, I watched the, the new David Attenborough documentary and it really woke me up. It's amazing how much it's changed. And it was only a few years ago that people were complaining that the David, David Attenborough documentaries were being a bit too preachy. You know, oh, he's getting off, getting bit off message. I just want to see like, like amazing pictures of um, pristine wildlife and things like that. That's not the reality of the world we live in. The reality of the world we live in is that the Amazon rainforest is deliberately being burnt down. Borneo has lost a tremendous amount of its um, like pristine rainforest ecosystem to palm oil plantations. Mm -hmm. And we're losing um, huge areas of biodiversity in our seas because of things like super trawlers absolutely scooping it clean and loads of industries that are focused on shark finning and how devastating that is for our like our, our predators in our seas and it's all slowly <laughs> collapsing uh, around us and it's so uh, it can be so demoralizing until you look at one of your videos for example and you look at some of the comments and you see how people are really like really invigorated and impassioned about these animals oh, i didn't know like like you know um there, there was such a thing as a blue bullfrog i didn't know that mutations happened like this i didn't know that the great alligator gar was persecuted 100 years ago mm -hmm. i want to do something about it where where's the petition i can sign oh, how do i talk to my parents is this taught in schools and it's only been within in my opinion the last five years that this momentum has really started to push out from the general public um all over the world to try and defend the planet and hats off to people like you that are just dedicated no worries uh, dedicated to defending the natural world and educating the public on how to do it and the mark like the splendor of the natural world especially in um america where um people are surrounded by different um ecosystems all across america and not knowing the gold that is right there in their backyard and they just right. have to go on an adventure and you take them there each time so well, thank you Cody, here's, for that. here's a great example um i think that kind of wraps this all into one nice little compacted great roundup of this conversation that we've had so mm. i said earlier we did this this conservation project it actually just ended this past weekend, this fundraiser for uh, Karika Game Reserve and the Rhinos. Uh, the little boy who won is only seven years old. Wow. He managed to raise over $10,000 from 142 different people. Like this was like a candy bar drive. Like he had to go out and get people to donate money for the chance to win a trip for him and his family to South Africa with me to go to Karika to spend several days getting to explore the property, seeing the rhinos, like this kid's seven years old. Like this yeah. could have been some 40 year old that's like, oh yeah, sweet. You know, I'm putting some money. I want to go to an all expense paid trip to South Africa to hang out with Coyote. We are so excited and proud that this seven year old kid who loves animals managed to pull this off. And I've got my first Zoom call set up with him on Thursday and his family. They're, they're so thankful. They're so appreciative. They're so proud of him. We're so proud of him. Mm. But where I'm going with this is that this little boy, his name is Drew. He is the kind of person that will ultimately be the one that ends up saving rhinos because of the experience he's going to go have in South Africa that may change the course of his life that becomes his education, his career, and his ultimate impact on humanity and his love for animals like and that's how this kind of stuff happens like he could be the next david attenborough for all we know and this is going to be his first huge international trip and experience i mean i can't even imagine being seven years old and going to south africa to see rhinos and elephants and lions yeah but he did this he raised this money on his own and he earned it and like we are just so excited to be able to take him on this trip of course, when COVID permits it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a. Uh, oh, that's so cool. It. Yeah. Oh, it, like for the last ten years, we're just seeing this slow um, destruction of the planet, and then you see these examples of these amazing kids right? doing such amazing things for the environment, and like showing a real passion that they 
that you know you can see it in their eyes that they're going to take it with them for the rest of their lives oh and and make oh we've got, there's so much hope so much hope yeah i just hope my kids have just got even an ounce of what um like this is drew is it drew is that his name yeah and well you know what's so cool about that it's like look as adults i know a lot of us do our part in our own way but the thing with adults is like man you get wrapped up in life right i gotta you know my job my bills my free time my sports my drinking time with my buddies you know whatever whatever an individual's direction might be and the thing is like a younger generation is not worried about those things at this point so if like we can influence these kids to get into this stuff now that's where that change might happen and look steve Irwin, jeff corwin attenborough like all these guys did a great job inspiring what our generation is and a lot of people are doing a lot of really great things yeah. but we've got to pay it backwards right we got to keep encouraging the future generations especially the ones now that are growing up with technology mm. and that are able to really see this happening they're so connected to technology at this point it's easier for them to connect and understand which is both a blessing and a curse i will say yeah. but like when i was drew's age the best thing I could do is find a book to read and books are certainly insanely important still, but then the wealth of education that can now be absorbed by the young minds that are out there is just on a level that I couldn't have comprehended when I was his age. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I remember being on a, like a dial up modem uh, and trying to listen to great horned owl um, vocalizations <laughs> as a 12 year old and going, yeah. this is magic. <laughs> yeah. Well, the owl sounds are coming through the computer and the computer screen like weighs like 40 pounds. And if it tips over, it's going to crush you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's so cool. So uh, we are getting on in time, but I just want to say thank you so much. But before you go, what have you got uh, planned for us in the future? What's coming up next on Brave Wilderness? Oh man, we've got a slew of awesome episodes coming out through November and December. I would, I would argue to say it's our, our best content of the year. Uh, we just filmed uh, two episodes of a, a smallly produced series we're doing called Strike Zone, where we brought animals into a studio setting and filmed their strikes in slow motion. Um, cool. It's really cool. The shots turned out fantastic. One episode comes out in November, one in December. And for those that like the bite and sting content, no new stings coming out, but Eaten Alive by Sea Lampreys drops in November and Eaten Alive by Piranha comes out just in time for the Christmas holidays. So there's some big stuff coming on Brave Wilderness and um, we've had a great year. It's been, it's been awesome. Even with the challenges of COVID, uh, we've managed to persevere and yeah just thanks again for having me on the show i feel like this needs to become like a uh, every other month sort of thing so we can catch up and just the conversation about conservation and what's happening it's good to just exercise that conversation and for anybody that's out there listening hopefully it's inspiring and you know i know i'm inspired talking about it and thinking about the future generations and the existing ones that are going to change our planet that's it. I'm, I'm going to look forward to that. Our next conversation then. We've got to flex yeah. our muscles and have a few more rants, I think. But Cody Peterson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It was a fantastic time and I'm looking forward to the next one.